you were going to share life lessons and insights with the next generation, I wonder, what would you share? And what if some of these insights were lessons from the generations before? I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. Today's guest has trod a journey, a path many of us fear deeply. In 2018, Ella Ward was, as she says, hit with the cancer stick. Apart from being rather frightening, it also encouraged a foray into oversharing on Instagram and into writing. But it's possible that Ella was always destined down the writer's path, coming from a family of storytellers. In her first published book, Ella Ward weaves together 27 letters to her daughter. Actually, that's the title of the book, (laughs) 27 Letters to My Daughter. Knitted together across these letters are generations of words and experiences from her great-grandparents, her grandparents, her mother and her own stories offered as treasures for the heart of her daughter. Treasures for us all. I had the chance to skim the book before Ella and I connected in this conversation and since our chat, I've devoured every word, I've laughed and I've cried and I've soaked up all 188 life lessons that this book has to offer. This is a book that you'll want to read, reread and gift generously. Ella has worked in advertising for 20 years for agencies in London and Melbourne. Most recently, she headed up the client services for Saatchi and Saatchi and she bloody loves the world of advertising. She has one husband and one child and a number of ongoing existential crises. So pause whatever else you're doing and dive into this conversation with the whip-smart and utterly delightful Ella Ward. Ella, welcome. It is just such a delight to, to be connecting with you and diving into this conversation. Hello. Hello from down south. down south down in melbourne i'm up on the gold coast uh my preference would have been to do this face to face but again we'll go with the uh the secondary while we while we can at this stage yes i think that um luckily two years in we're all slightly more comfortable with the technology We've we've learnt the the glow of putting um at least putting a top on and and some lighting. <laughs> I promise you, I'm wearing pants, Ali. Perfect, perfect. Me too, by the way. Just so you know. Well, good. We're both winning already. Yes. Uh, when I reached out to you to ask to see whether you might be interested in joining me for a conversation on the podcast. I got one of the best responses that I think I've got where you said, I don't know that I have anything to talk about, but I'm up for a gossip, (laughs) which I love. (laughs) Where did your kind of pull or interest to gossiping or even storytelling, where did that come from? Uh, uh, I love talking about myself, as my husband would joke. He's in the next room. I had to make that joke before he makes it um, for me. No, I love I love talking about people and humans and stories. When my mother and I go out for a meal or a coffee, we fight over the chair that faces into the restaurant so we can observe what's going on with other people. Um, yeah, I, I come from a, a long line of people who who like to to watch and and engage, you know, and, and and hear from other people. So whether it's a gossip or whether it's a you know. A, a long a long walk with with my sister-in-law which is what I did this morning and and sort of solving the the ways of the world it's it's I don't think there's anything more fulfilling than connecting with other people you're talking to a psychologist who would also fight you for that seat in the table to be able to uh, you know witness and observe so um you have a keen interest in that as well tell me a little bit about your story where did you grow up uh what was your kind of younger years like uh, I'm a Melbourne girl, born and bred, so, you know, all black turtlenecks and riding around on trams. My f- mother's side of the family are American, but my, my dad's uh, been around in Aussie for a few generations, which meant that I sort of grew up with this fantastical desire to go live in England, I think because it was literally the most foreign thing I could imagine, um, which is hilarious when you think of most other sort of white Aussies who have literally come over from there not, not that long ago. So yeah, I'm, I lived in lived in Melbourne until I was 21, 22, and then moved over to the UK uh, and started um, my career in advertising. 
Uh, I didn't really have much choice about going into advertising. Literally every single one of my family either were or currently still are in advertising. I think I cracked once that I didn't actually know any other jobs existed until at least 2004. So, yeah, I moved over to London and lived there for a few years and uh, worked in agencies and got some really extraordinary experience from a career perspective and uh, also managed to meet and fall in love with a very handsome Englishman. Perfect. Uh, and I dragged him back, kicking and screaming. Uh, so, yeah, and since then um, we're back in Melbourne together, married, one child, two animals, both working in advertising, as per mentioned, no, no other jobs in this family. You know, just rolled with lots of life crap that gets thrown at you and I got a particularly big handful of it in 2018 when I was diagnosed with stage 3 squamous cell carcinoma up my bum, uh, which is the very sexually named anal cancer. So that was a big shock. Uh, and that was three days before I was due to start my next job in another agency, helping run that. My daughter was in prep. Um, my husband was in shock. And we dealt with all the stuff that we had to do through most of 2018 with that. And then since then, I've just been dealing with a pandemic and recovery and going back to work and writing a book. And that brings just me a couple to of you things. today. <laughs> just a couple of things. We definitely will get to, you know, the shocks that life kind of throws at, at us. Did you meet your husband in the advertising world? Uh, yes. I met him in literally in the office. Our knees touched at the uh, laptop in 2003 and I was like, oh, my God, it's electric. Um <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, yeah, he he was working in the same agency. Uh, he wasn't technically my boss, but he was certainly uh, more senior, older, and also in the same department. But I refuse to say that he was my boss because he certainly never was. But yeah, he he his life plan did not include a, a young Australian girl popping up and uh, telling him in no uncertain terms that she was not going to be staying the rest of her life in London. Um, so, but I definitely extended my trip. Uh, or extended my stay in London for much longer because of, of Tom. We ended up living together in a lovely leafy flat in North London and having a very special time over there before homesickness started to erode the big, deep bits of my soul and I really had to come home. And clearly had planted uh, a new plan for Tom around where he was going and what he was going to be doing. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I've said that, Literally one of the first nights that we sort of spent talking to each other over a pint in a very beautiful English pub, I, I said, I am an Australian and I will be going back to Australia. And he said to me a couple of years later when I called back to that point when we were having quite an emotional, is this going to break up, are we going to stay together conversation? And I was like, but I told you. And he said in his very British way, I just chose to ignore that bit. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, it was certainly not in his plan or his family's plan. Um, and it wasn't in my plan either. It's not that easy to be married to somebody from 16,000 kilometres away, but um, I wouldn't have it any other way. If I dive into advertising and it, and it sounds like it's the uh, the fish, pole, fish bowl that you're swimming, <laughs> swimming in <laughs> in terms of there is no other job. What is it that has kept you in advertising? Uh, there probably was a moment where you realised maybe there is some other jobs. Yeah. What is it that you've loved about it or what is it, you know, what areas have you kind of worked in and what's kept you interested in it? When I first, my, my parents were both in advertising from well before I was born. That's how they met. They met at an advertising awards due in Melbourne, which I have then subsequently attended myself. So, you know, talk about time travelling. <sighs> I've grown up knowing what advertising was and I just sort of assumed that maybe I wanted to be a copywriter, which, you know, writing words to sell stuff. And I realised very, very quickly that you have to be extremely good at writing a certain type of way to be a copywriter and that was not me. And also I really like organising things. So um, I'm a list maker and a schedule sticker tour and a um, timeline deliberator you know those are all my things and so for me the role in, of you know working in account service in advertising was that perfect intersection of creativity um, and organization so from a very rational side of things that's what I enjoyed about the job 
initially, but emotionally and what has kept me entangled in that uh, webbed world is the people. I've never known anyone else who has worked in an industry um, that has even come close to the group of um, people that advertising delivers, which is whip smart, fiercely, endlessly, relentlessly, irritatingly creative, incredibly resilient, very, very stubborn and quite frustrating and genuinely some of the most brilliant people I've ever, you know, had the privilege to to work alongside. So I haven't been working in advertising for a year and hands down I, I miss the people more than anything. They are they're astounding groups. Very irritating, but astounding. <laughs> <laughs> As someone who, um, you know, doesn't live in the, the fishbowl and my my sense of the advertising world probably mostly comes from Gruen, if I'm really <laughs> honest. You, there was something you said even um, before we kind of hit record was this, you know, the part of the industry has given you quite a, quite a high pain threshold, this kind of emotional pain, this kind of this incredible kind of experience of that what what have and where have you grown as a result of working in the industry working in the, oh, that's the, a good um, question I, I think um it's very hard I'm 40 and I'm one of the oldest women who is working in my agency I think probably maybe the oldest so it's not a um quote-unquote old industry uh, particularly for women so it's very hard for me to answer that question without sounding like a cynical, salty old sea dog sort of smashing rollies on the corner and saying, in my day, you know, because I don't <laughs> want to be that person. But uh, it, when I was growing up in the industry, there was very little room for precious fear, saying no saying I don't feel like doing that or that's too hard or I don't have the answer for that. You know, um, there's that old cliche of when you're doing um, drama sports or theatre sports, you know, you're jumping in and you're always saying yes and, you know, you always have to keep that conversation going. You always have to keep yourself open to that. And that's what working in advertising has to be, particularly in account service, because account service is the intersection between the creative department and the client. So, excuse my French, but you are constantly the shit in the sandwich, you know, because the creators want to go one way and the client wants to go one way, another way. And it's that tension uh, which often delivers the best outcome, but it's also the account service person who has to sit in the middle of that tension. So I think the thing that that I have picked up and, and has really helped formed me as a person is there is not really this room for obstructive, closed-down thinking. It's always, okay, there's a problem, let's work on the solution, yes, and maybe we could try this X, Y, and Z. And it's, it's, a, it's a creative way of thinking um, in, in the broader sense of the word. So that's what I've really taken from being in the industry for over two decades um, and applied it to lots of other different factors of my life. And it's a, um, it's a skill to learn. It's the, it's the skill to learn that there's not... The creatives aren't right and the client's wrong or the client's right and the creatives are wrong. It's not the, you know, it's not this kind of binary. It's the, and I love that sense of yes and. Mm. And how often in other areas of our life if we came to these conversations to debate to different perspectives that if, you know, that that skill, that strength, mm. it's, it's a hard one to learn but what options are there to start to open up in a much, much broader way when we can sit yeah, in that tension. Yes, exactly. It's like, um, it, I mean, my job is customer service. I, I you know, it's, it's either called account service or client service, but it's customer service. You know, I, I basically sit behind the equivalent of a shop counter and I deal with customers all day. And sometimes those customers can be rude or emotional or angry or scared. Um, so anyone who works in customer service has a similar experience. The difference is, is that I have um, sometimes a, a large group of very passionate creative people behind me <laughs> telling me what I can and can't sell. Uh, so, you know, it's, a, it's not an easy industry and it's not getting any easier by any means, but it, I think because it is so tough, the people who are in there are in there for 
I wouldn't say the right reasons, but they're in there, all in there for very similar reasons. And that creates a sense of camaraderie that I'm not certain that you would get in many other industries. I, um, my assumption or my sense is it's that it's con- the continual push of what's next. What's, how do we continue to kind of push and deliver and think, think differently, think bigger? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's what your clients are paying you for. And it's also what you are being expected to do on their behalf. And that's just from the creative side, you know. And then you've got the account service side is, you know, you mentioned Gruen. Um, Russell Howcroft was one of my first bosses when I came back to Australia. And working with Russ was as brilliant and wonderful as you can imagine having, having watched the show. But, you know, he really taught me as I was sort of coming up the ranks back then that it's also about the business side of things too. Uh, and that's what, you know, being an account service is, is you're also continuing to push for, you know, revenue and efficiencies and growth and all that sort of, you know, boring stuff on spreadsheets. But when it's in that environment of creativity, I personally found um, it, it fascinating. Also terrifying for someone who literally can't add two numbers together without the help of a calculator. But, you know. That's what calculators are for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We start to shift from, you know, the, the, the people relationship to, to the craft of writing um, yeah. and, and we'll get to the book in the moment and, and one of the things the book has, you know, you've, you've beautifully woven, you mentioned before about kind of time travelling or time warping and, you know, I think there's a real absolute sense of that um, in the book and I, and I get a sense and I, I believe that you've kind of come from this family of writers that Mm. the ability to be able to tap into narrative stories letters journals um you know and and the way that you kind of pull that together as a side question there's a part of me that thinks like how hard would that have been and there's probably 50 other books that you could have written with everything that you (laughs) left on the floor um, in terms of of things that have written but tell me a little bit about your relationship uh, with writing, with words, with uh, pulling things together? I I love writing. I love it. I think that maybe if I hadn't have started working in advertising at 19, I would have pursued it more um, passionately. But I think, honestly, working in an industry with actual writers, and when I, when I say actual writers, I mean people who are paid to do a job uh, that have the word writer in the in the job title made me think that I wasn't a writer. Uh, and I loved writing growing up. I, I, it was my sort of, I loved it. I loved writing short stories and it's, it was my passion at school. And it really probably coincided with the time that I moved to London and, you know, my life took over, my outside life took over my inner life a bit. And I really didn't write for 15 years because I was too busy snogging boys and doing timing plans and drinking pints, you know, I was just having a good time. But I think that what I've realised is that even through that sort of period, I did a lot of digging through notebooks and things, as you can imagine, in, in writing the book. And I was still writing, but I was writing in a different way. I was sort of recording little snippets of, of um, you know, this is, this is the 150-word description of the meal that we had tonight and it's in the back of a notebook and it's written sort of, you know, in bloody eyeliner or something. But it's so I didn't really stop but I stopped formally writing and I did not start again, you know, for, for quite a long time. But it's always been something that I have loved um, but didn't really think that I was a writer. Guess what? <laughs> it's changing. <laughs> oh, my God. My friend keeps introducing me. This is my friend. She's an author. And I'm like, I'm not. But, you know, it's so, it's so cliche for having that imposter syndrome. Um, oh. But, no, I certainly don't have author on my LinkedIn. But maybe I should. I should. I should. Maybe you should. Why not? <laughs> Why not? In um, in terms of tell me a little bit about the, the spark of the idea of pulling together these generations of writing. So mm. not only, and you've spoken, you know, just about your own um, interest in writing, but pulling together the stories of um, some of your mum's writing, your mm. grandparents, your great-grandparents. Where did that spark or that idea even come from? It was the pandemic, you know, as I imagine 
a lot of the people that you speak with over the next few years, the answer is probably always going to be the pandemic, now for good or or not so good. I, I was, you know, stuck in my house and bored. I like to do things that don't have to uh, do with work when I'm working. I, I want to have something else to sort of focus on. But I didn't really have any creative juices in my brain because I was busy doing what everyone else was doing, which is probably dealing with a fair bit of, you know, repressed trauma about what was going on in the world. So I rediscovered my great-grandfather's war letters that my grandmother had transcribed in 2005, I think. And so these are letters that he wrote. He was American fighting um, with the Marines or the, the cavalry, and it was written in 1918 from Europe back to his fiancée in the States. And they're extraordinary letters, and I had read them a number of times, but I hadn't read them for quite a long time, and I certainly hadn't read them since being married or having a child. So suddenly by picking them up again, I was um, picking up themes and words that I, you know, just had never, never really seen before. It was like looking at a magic eye uh, picture from the 90s. Remember those magic eye posters? And suddenly it all just went, yes. and I was like, oh, my God, look what I'm looking at. And in looking at those letters and reading them and absorbing them, I started to think of the parallel between what he was going through and then what we were going through in terms of our pandemic. And I was also still dealing with a fair bit of trauma about my own illness. And that sort of triangle of of compass points made me think, wouldn't it be interesting if I were to write my own letters, which is something that I'd sort of thought about in a very scared, uh, very scary way in 2018 when I was when I was diagnosed. But and I didn't write the letters because I was too busy having treatment and drinking gin and weeping. But uh, now, a couple of years later, I sort of thought, oh, I think I've got the headspace to write those letters myself. But I've also got these other letters that can almost help prop me up and hold my hand while I do that. And then as I was starting that, I started to think, oh, I remember grandma wrote this thing and I think Buzz did that and, oh, my mum's just finished this. And and it was really that organic that I just sort of started to pull them all together and think, shit, there's a lot of overlapping experience here. Uh, and that's when the book really came together. So the book is uh, is titled 27 Letters to My Daughter and so you, and you kind of describe and I can understand, you know, where this, this idea of wanting to write letters when you're faced with, with a diagnosis like cancer but then to, to have the space um, and what, what you so beautifully do in your writing is that is to kind of see this kind of time warp where you're back in 1918 and then back in the 60s and then current times and this kind of link and lineage that every single person has of where we've come from and, and then that the next generation and where we're passing passing down to. So it's a really beautiful book uh, and congratulations <laughs> in, in pulling that together. I'm going to do this really awful thing, so indulge me on this because I'm actually going to read <gasps> some of your words Yay! back back to you. Um <laughs> And uh, I know this is very new for you, this so is this, really is, but new this, is, this is the, the <laughs> exciting part of it. Um, I'm going to read back the very opening paragraph, which is, my darling, you're holding this book because I can no longer hold you. It feels cruel that my last act as a mother was to die. I am so sorry. It's the one thing more than anything I wish I could undo. Tell me about writing that paragraph. Heavy, <laughs> <laughs> isn't it? Um that's one of the ones I wrote back then, which you can probably mm. tell because it's 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 rough, it's raw. Oh, it's a moment, yeah. right? It's a real moment. Yeah. yeah, and and I um I was very scared, obviously, when I was when I was told that I was sick, and um, I became very very laser focused on this idea of there's so much stuff I haven't told her she's five and what if someone else tells her stuff but they tell it in the wrong way you know and this is when you start to realize that I'm this control freak you know and I'm and I'm an account service person and I like writing timelines and and user manuals you know so I'm like I need to give her a user manual for for life and and I need to do it anyway I had this conversation with my therapist and I said to him 
I need to write these letters to her and I need to, you know, tell her all this stuff. But uh, you won't be surprised to hear that it's very traumatic to do this. <laughs> and he's like, oh, you reckon? And I was like, I oh, know. And I, had, I barely started radiation and chemo and I was freaking out about the fact that I hadn't done these letters. And that was one of the first paragraphs I'd sort of started and it was too hard, Ali. I just couldn't do it without sobbing and yeah. um and I just couldn't do it. it was too it was it was it was physically painful to do that. So I had to stop and I had this conversation with with the psych and he said, Look, you're not going to die immediately. Uh, we know this, you know, unless you get hit by a car, which any of us could be, you are not going to die immediately. So why don't you promise yourself that you're going to give yourself to the end of the year and once you finish treatment, your first treatment, even if you're still going to die, this is how you have to talk to me because I'm a magical thinker, even if you're still going to die, you're not going to die immediately, so why don't you just postpone those letters? And what he was, of course, giving me was the permission to stop because it was too painful. And so I did stop and I stopped for a very long time. But when I started to pick up those those letters again and I felt I could write them without sobbing, um, that was one of the the paragraphs that I found along with the original list of the letters that I thought. And there were actually 42 of them that I originally sort of had written, sketched out in, in those early months. And um, it was very hard to find those again. Yeah, yeah, but in terms of um, like it smacks you when you read the book but it also gives this context there was something in it that went there's a there's a legacy just even in that paragraph there's this you know continuation on and then you get introduced to the other family members kind of post this but uh, it's it it zooms you right in where I am right now and uh, but this sense of actually this you're holding these letters and it's there's this legacy that can kind of continue on which invites you in to keep reading, (laughs) which is really beautiful. Thank you. It's, um, it's been very important for me. I didn't, I don't think I realized how important it was going to be for it to actually physically get published. I only saw the, um, only held the book for the first time last week and I was on my own in the house and I just. What was that like? Uh, oh, it was amazing. It was a dream come true. One of my genuine life dreams has always been to, to publish a book, but it's it's more than that, and I think I even surprised Tom when I said this. I don't know whether you have this with friends or or husbands or lovers or whatever, but I think that sometimes you will find yourself saying something that you didn't realise was true until it comes out of your mouth, which is why therapy is very important. Um, but I found myself saying this thing to him just the other night about holding that book, and I said to him, there's still a part of me that is worried that I'm going to, that the cancer is going to come back and I'm going to die. And it's particularly hard for me at the moment because I'm in my annual cycle of scans. So I had my PET scan on okay. just Tuesday this week. So I'm in the midst that a lot of your listeners can understand, which is scanxiety. So it all feels incredibly heightened and poignant. But to hold that book, it, there was there's a genuine little, the way I described it to Tom was like, it's like a little, almond-shaped, almond-sized glow or a light that I can picture in my chest and it's just, it's gone on and it's the knowledge that if I do get eaten by a rhinoceros tomorrow, that there's something left. And, I mean, holy shit, what an egotistical thing to say. But as a mother, it is, as a parent, it's an, it's an almost unspeakable relief that it's done. And I don't want to go anywhere and nothing would ever stand in my stead and a book certainly couldn't, but it would, it's better than nothing. And it's interesting that the ego, right, you know, pops up and goes, oh, you know, but, you know, who are you? All those sorts of things that can come up. But what if, I mean, we've, I agree with you in terms of the story. I believe we've all got a story to tell and, and it's an evolving story and it's a continuing story. It's never... Uh, a full stop even once the the book is held in your hand right there's 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 other things and what if everyone shared those kind of stories what if what's next and so that's really powerful can you tell me just and I'm going to go quite practical here we've we've kind of we've, we've kicked off with the emotional 
Um, what was the process in even finding a publisher? Oh, this is where everyone's gonna. This is where everyone's gonna tune out because I was one of those assholes that someone found me. Like, oh, so annoying. I've actually got a few friends who are currently trying to get published, and they're like, "Ah, oh, you're an, you're a jerk." But it happened this way. Um, <laughs> I started to hustle to publish articles because I um, I was approached by. Um, Georgie Abe, who is the founder and sort of owner of The Grace Tales, which is a wonderful magazine and sort of, you know, she's a media empire owner now. Anyway, she uh, contacted me a few years back and asked me if I'd write something for their, for their blog, and I did. And it was very raw, mainly because I was on significantly serious pain medication. But, you know, she just was like, yeah, cool, we'll publish it. And I got such a buzz out of that experience that I wanted more and more and more. And so I started very deliberately to seek out other publications and to pitch them articles. And this was when I was still um, in treatment and then at the tail end of treatment. And so I was hustling, I was cold calling, I was cold emailing, I was pitching my ass off. And I got a couple of different articles published. And at the same time, I was working on a book pitch and the book um, was something with the working title was No More Fucking Lasagna. And it was the art, it was it was a guide for the recently cancery. And the idea was this entire book was going to be all about, you know, what to do if you've just been diagnosed with cancer. Very war and I wrote this big pitch. And I was madly pitching the book too and the book kept getting knocked back because everyone was saying, yeah, it's not really not that great. And then there was this wonderful intersection of I, I had to hustle particularly hard but to the point where I was being extremely irritating and probably stepping on a few toes. But I had to, I really felt passionately about getting this piece published in The Age um, and the Sydney Morning Herald on Anzac Day about my great-grandfather's letters. And so I managed to get that piece published and I was very proud of that. And at the same time, I was working madly in the background on this cancer book which no one wanted a bar of. And I was contacted via the email link on my little website by uh, a woman by the name of Catherine Milne, who I'm a massive idiot and had no idea who she was, but she happens to be the head of fiction of HarperCollins. And she said, I've just read your piece about your great-grandfather's letters and it wasn't even in the paper. She'd read it, posted on like a blog that someone had shared and and she'd found her way onto my website and read some of my other writing and she said, I think you have a book here. And I was like, whoa. But between that initial email and then getting the contract uh, was 18 months, which was really the end of 2019 and um, a lot of 2020 was me just staying on it staying staying con- connected during a time when everyone just their worlds blew up so they stopped answering emails completely understandably people forgot people lost my email people lost my pitch and I honestly I didn't have anything else to do apart from homeschool you know work my bum off on zoom meetings but on weekends and night times there was nothing else to do so I just kept just pushing gently reminding those people that I was still there and, yeah, I, I signed a contract at the end of 2020. <laughs> it was awesome. Really exciting to be able to kind of pull that together and the work that goes that goes into you, into that as well. Across these 27 letters, and no doubt there was more that, as you say, you kind of had a few and there was a few that probably kind of dropped to the wayside. Um, throughout these 27 les- letters, you've got 188 lessons um across them all do you have a favorite i know it might be hard (laughs) when you've kind of written is there one or a couple that kind of stand out to you in terms of some of the lessons that you've written down oh that's a good question i not look i really like um wear cotton knickers because it's very important and i genuinely want my daughter to know that and also keep tweezers in the car because that that is actually where the entire book started because um, I was driving to pick her up from school after my radiation session and I realised that I'd never told her because she's five, but you must keep tweezers in the car because it's the best place to do your eyebrows. Um, and that's what I started to think I need to write these letters for my kid. 
I think one of my other favourite lessons is do your stupid things with kind people. Uh, and that can basically sum up most of my 20s. It's actually one of the ones that I've pulled out. I've like try really? and do your stupid things with kind people. I'm like, I love that. Preferably if they don't have phones or social media. <laughs> is even yeah, exactly. Better. We're very lucky. We're very lucky to do all of our stupid things with um, analogue people and who were who were also kind. Uh, yeah. Have you got a favourite? Um, that was one that I that I pulled out for sure. Was that um, you know try and, and do stupid things with with kind people. If I go to a couple of the letters, there's a few that I'd love to kind of pull out. Um, uh, obviously, there's 27. We don't have time to go go through them all. Um, but one of them I want to hone in on, and I think when you start to you know, nostalgia and reflection, we we can sometimes want to put a life is fine, life is you'll be fine, no problem, everything's fine, mm. uh, kind of lens on it. And you've not done that. So you've explored the, the beauty of it, but you've also explored the reality of it. One of them is being a jerk. We're all going to be it. Talk to me a little bit about that letter. <laughs> I think that letter's a bit, look, it's funny. It's That letter is, that letter is very much grounded in the person who works in advertising for a long time. You know, it's like everyone in advertising has a little bit of a, of a, a bit of a C word in them, you know, like they're just, if you're going to have to last in that sort of industry for any prolonged period of time, you've got to be a bit of a jerk. And that edge uh, isn't necessarily a good thing, but it certainly can help you uh, in in many different you know, scenarios that life will throw at you. And so that chapter was almost, it started almost as a celebration of being a bit of an asshole and a bit of a jerk, but it's also an apology. And I think that I genuinely wrote the book thinking of my daughter reading it after I died. And I really didn't want her to think, because there's a lot of stuff in that book that, you know, I talk about things that were wonderful and, as you say, were rose-coloured and nostalgic and, oh, my God, I'm dripping in premature nostalgia. I was born nostalgic. That's me, Ellie. But I I didn't want her to read it in the future and feel like I had been dishonest about, you know, the fact that I'm a, I'm a person with with flaws and many, many, many flaws. Uh, so, yeah, it was really important for, for me to acknowledge that and also that she's flawed, you know. She's going she's gonna to grow up and be an asshole and think, does that make me a really bad person? It's like, no, it just makes you a person. Yeah, and that's part and parcel. One of them is to find yourself a coven. If you can give us the <sighs> definition of a coven and then tell me a little bit about this letter or where has those, those covens for you Um added to your life? I really wanted to um, write a a letter or a chapter that celebrated friendship and not necessarily all friendships but particularly female friendships and motherhood and that sort of organic intimacy of of a group of women. It sort of develops an almost spiritual energy even if you are not remotely a spiritual person And, and that's where the idea of a coven uh, came from which you know um, as your listeners would know it's a it's it's a group of, of witches basically and I thought I liked the idea of reclaiming um, that term because it can be um, used as a very derogatory term for a bunch of eccentric strong-willed women uh, which you know holy shit I'd love to join a bunch of witches sitting around a cauldron and talking shit about people that dump them um, so Finding yourself a coven is a love letter to women and the women in my life. And I grew up with a lot of women in my life because um, my mother was a single mother for most of my childhood. And so she had a lot of women around her who were, you know, um, part of the village. And we were the women at the well and we were sitting around there and I was sort of tugging at their apron strings and hearing about life. And then uh, as I got older, I got to develop my own um, group of those women. So it was a, it's a celebration. It's a celebration of, of love and connection um, and, and very feminine energy, um, that, that letter. I had to send that letter to all of the women in that 
chapter, including my mother, my grandmother, my ex-stepmother, and my mother-in-law. And luckily for me, all of them gave me their blessing and approval to continue unedited. Uh, but that was the one I was most nervous about sharing, I have to say. Because the witches want to keep their secrets to themselves. Mm, right? They do. Yeah, that's... um. But just the support system that sits around that, the the time that's invested in in friendship and how powerful that is when life turns up. How was that a support to you or, you know, in what ways did that turn up? I love like even that come to not another lasagna type thing when you were going through your own diagnosis and treatment with cancer. Where did those those friendships kind of bolster you? Yeah, I think, um, I think it's to be... I, th- I think that when you go through any form of trauma, there's almost this sort of Venn diagram of of groups of people who can who can help you, and who provide you with sustenance. And there are there are people who provide you with physical help, um, and then there's also those people who you literally do not see once, but they are on your phone or on your socials, you know, all the time. And I felt very lucky that I had those groups of people and there was obviously an overlapping sort of in the middle of that but I am relieved that I got sick when my daughter was in prep because I had just joined the community of a primary school and there is something um, very powerful about that community and so there was a lot of women who I had only really just met because um I got sick when my daughter was just at the end of term one. So I'd literally only just sort of met these people. I actually went to the prep family cocktail party the day after I was diagnosed. Um, How was with that? With these sort of manic eyes. Ah, oh, hysterical. <sighs> and only like one woman knew and my husband. And, and, and Tom's looking at me like, are you sure you want to go? I'm like, yes, everything's fine. Um Mad madness, but uh, so so I'm really pleased that I was um, in a position either before a pandemic or after joining community with um, neighbours and school people um, that could physically and practically support me, like picking the kid up from school or um, dropping lasagna off at the at the front doorstep. But I'm also relieved and very grateful that I had a wider spread but but um almost even more intimate support group through those girlfriends who had known me since I was eight and also people who I really had sort of like colleagues and things some random people just pop up and become incredible pillars of strength you know I had one woman who was the wife of a colleague from 10 years earlier and she dropped off a meal to my doorstep every week for six months. And it was bewildering in its generosity. Uh, and I was embarrassed about it. But that was just what she did. That's how she, you know. And then there were other people that sent me Jude Law gifts for days, which is exactly Perfect. what I'd asked for. <laughs> um, but it was it was brilliant. So I think that... Um, no matter where you are in your life stage, there will be different groups of people who lift you up and hold you in different ways. And there are people, those that kind of show up in in those moments. One of the things, and I'm going to stereotype here in terms of I think women struggle with this more so than men, but in those moments sometimes asking for help, you know, sending the text saying, mm. can you please pick up mm. child on this day? Mm. And we are the first ones to be, if we're asked to be there. Um, How did you reconcile that tension of now being the person asking for help? Who needed help? Uh, It's a really good question. And you know what? It's still probably the number one question I get from strangers on the internet. And it always goes the same way, which is, hi, I'm so sorry to contact you this way. It's always in sliding into my DMs on Instagram. My insert female friend here has just been diagnosed with cancer I'm in shock what can I do to help them and the best advice that I give and it's because I was on the receiving end of this type of um, offer is you don't when you're in the middle of the shitstorm, you don't ask for help and when people come to you in the middle of the shitstorm and they say what can I do to help 
you can't answer that question because there's nothing they can do to help, but there's everything. Take the fucking cancer and away so, is what you can do. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I used to say that and that would really upset people and Tom would have to sort of steer me away from them. But uh, it was when they were giving me their pity eyes mm. and that's when, like, the rage would kick in and I'd, I'd get really cross. Anyway, um, the best advice that I uh, that I can give is you give people options and it's very practical. So you um, never call. And you send a text message and you say something like, I'm walking my dog this Tuesday afternoon. What time can I pick yours up? So there's no emotional energy that is required on the, re- the recipient of that text. All they need to say is four o'clock. Or if they really, really don't want you to take their dog, then you say, um, they say, you know, no thanks. But And, and so that's, that's how I found... Um, that I learnt that through the hard way that I didn't necessarily want to ask for help and I couldn't ask for help, but the people who helped me the most were the people who didn't really need me to ask, if that makes sense. Um, they just said, do you feel like um, chicken soup or spaghetti bolognese this week? Yeah. And women are, women are very good at intuiting that and it makes it a lot easier to, to answer. Great advice around, yeah, give options, text. <laughs> And don't yeah. uh, don't put that additional load because the actual answer is something obvious, of, often that you can't do. The the very thing mm. that I I want the most is actually the thing that no one's got the mm. answer to. Whatever that kind of trauma trauma is in the moment. The topics and the letters are wide and varied. As I said, we've only touched on a couple, but you cover off marriage, um, food, taste, touch. So the senses work, <laughs> um, the power of putting your name to something, which again, you know, mm. I, you know, I totally understand wanting that for your daughter, but also recognizing how hard that is by putting your own book out as well. Um, and so, you know, we learn, learn the lessons along the way. You also got a statement in there, obviously around family. Um, and it's, you know, it's really tied through. You've got, uh, if you have a family, then you have a story. What did you learn about yourself from the stories of diving even in further into the stories? I think, I think it reinforced a suspicion I already had, which was, it sounds trite, but the shitstorm and the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows are genuinely down to what you make it. And so if you choose to be a pessimist and to um, never wear rose-coloured glasses and to never practise gratitude, and to never believe in magic, then the life that you lead will be a more grey life. And I think that in spending the time with my family, um, many of whom are dead now, in spending time with their words, it's it, it, realize, it made me realise I didn't necessarily come from a privileged family in terms of, you know, experience or um or, you know, more practicalities, but I came from a family that were privileged in their ability to seek joy and to experience humour and to believe in magic. And that's something that I think I, growing up, I probably didn't understand. And then as I got a little bit older, I was probably, I probably took for granted. So I went from two extremes um, to where I am now, which is uh, I feel very very grateful for that that history and that legacy that they've left with me. There's a there's a part in the book where I write a potted history of the entire family, but through the lens of um, someone who is not seeing the world in a positive way. And I state facts, you know, I say this man was injured, um, he was nearly killed by an artillery shell in Belgium. His daughter developed polio when she had two children under three and she was told she'd never work, walk again. Her daughter um, was left by two husbands and um, had people sort of, you know, die and abandon her around her. And then her daughter was diagnosed with cancer and it's just a family that was followed by misfortune and death and tragedy and it just doesn't sit right with me. 
and it doesn't sit right with any of those people either. All of those things happened. They just didn't happen in that way and we didn't respond to them in that way. And I don't think that we're very special, um, but I think that sometimes people can forget how much power your attitude can actually provide you. And again, that legacy, the ability to call forth the magic, to, to spot and see the joy. I know for me and and I, I think even for those listening, there are times sometimes in the most hardest, traumatic, you know, gut-wrenching moments have been some of the funniest <laughs> moments. <laughs> have these been these kind of, you know, just irrational humour, this, this, these moments of pure kind of joy and connection in a way that just doesn't mm. happen in the day-to-day kind of life. And it's not this binary, that moment was was awful. It was just, it was painted differently. Oh, my God. I mean, the I had a, everything was fine, but my daughter, um, we had to call an ambulance for her uh, about a, a six weeks ago at night. And it was very scary. And I felt like I was going to be sick with fear and and trauma. Anyway, we ended up at the children's hospital and everything was fine and we got home and I was posting something on Instagram that afternoon slightly maniacally because I hadn't slept and I think I was still coming down from the adrenaline and the relief and uh, a friend of mine in the UK messaged me and she said, trauma looks good on you. <laughs> and I know what she meant. Um, it, life, is, life is funnier when you don't give as much of a shit and trauma takes away all of the shit giving <laughs> in a person. You know, there is a freedom um, that comes with fear and pain and PTSD. And, you know, it's it's not a coincidence that me Instagramming from my hospital bed when I was, as I said at the time, over-medicated and under-stimulated and I was hospitalised for pain relief because my cancer treatment was so medievally brutal, that was some of the funniest stuff I ever put out on the internet and I just kept getting messages from people saying, I can't believe I'm laughing at this. This is so terrible. <laughs> Keep doing it. You know, and it was it was very powerful. And I really, maybe that was the opium, but I, I like I was very, the opium, the, the methadone. Maybe, you know, I, I was very, um, I was very brave at that time. And I'm not a comedian by any any stretch of the imagination, but I know um, I, I've heard comedians speak in the past, and that you know it's that it's that pace of that place of bravery and pain that can produce so so many laughs and such fun. And as you say, Ali, you know we've all been in that situation where we've been crying over a glass of wine or a coffee with a girlfriend, and that's when you start to laugh, and that's all we've got left. At the moment, is can laughter. <laughs> it is. It's this, and it's permission. It's connection. It's it's that it's not this kind of binary. It's um, and there are these these moments. I you know to share with you a story. Twelve months ago, my dad um, passed away from prostate cancer. Had had it for eleven years, and and you know we uh, we got these eleven bonus years really in a lot of ways with him. Um, and was palliative kind of care at, at home. So I actually had a granny flat in the back of our place. Got to that point where it's actually time to kind of call the ambulance. Called the ambulance, they put him in the back. And uh, where they were parked, they they went to kind of um, do a U-turn in our backyard. And the fellow said, can I do that? Oh, yeah, 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 no worries. But they'd gone all the way down the back, which is muddy, oh, and, and got grabbed. <laughs> And so, you know, this is like final moments, yeah. last, you know, I'm, me and my brothers are pushing <laughs> this ambulance and I'm just like, like literally in the moment going, how does this end? How does this? But also both me and my brother sneakily took a photo. <laughs> We're like, we know this is not appropriate, but holy fuck, look at this. We're going to look back and laugh at this moment. And I do remember going, surely my dad's life is not reliant on my ability to push an ambulance out of a pot. But, you know, what you've, just, what you've just done there is, you know, and you're the, you're the brain professional here, but, and I talk about this in the book, you know, if, if you, I'm not saying that laughter is protecting us because I think in some ways it often exposes you to the pain in a way that you can actually 
consume and, and process. But there is mm. also sometimes something is so painful that in order to see it through the lens of a of a joke or a shared connection with, you know, a sibling going, I cannot believe that we're both experiencing this, or whether it's sharing on social media, almost gives you just a little bit of extra space in between you and the pain to just breathe a little bit. And it wasn't until Tom read that chapter that I wrote about why I shared my shit on the internet, basically, my pain and my cancer and all that sort of stuff. And I, I explained to, him, to, to the book and therefore to him when he read it, I was like, if I was documenting it and I was making a joke about it, then I could process it and I continue to get up the next day and think, okay, what else is going to happen today that I could be sharing to someone else that would be interesting? And the fourth or fifth week I had I had 30 sessions of, of radiation, um, which is the most session, the most amount of radiation you can ever have. So I'm not allowed to have any more radiation. I don't know why they worry because I've already got cancer. But anyway. So I was sort of at the point in the radiation where the third degree burns are starting to kick in. And it's a horrific experience. And I was having trouble walking. But I remember thinking that was the day in which I was going to take a time-lapse video of me having my radiation therapy because I was interested to sort of share that experience with other people. So I went in there with my phone and I said hi to the nurses because you see them every day, every week, you know, Monday to Friday, same time. And I set my phone up and I did this little time-lapse video and then I edited it and I put it online. And that entire day was about sharing that experience and then receiving people saying, oh, I never knew it was like that. That's amazing and asking questions. So all of my energy both physically and mentally, was focused on that as opposed to the fact that I couldn't sit down anymore and I couldn't walk to see my kid at school anymore. So that chapter in which I talk about that is um, that's probably the only chapter in which I see it, the energy is a bit of a fuck you chapter because there are still people out there who are a bit like, oh, did you really have to talk about mm. cancer on the internet? Oh, my God, it was funny for the first few weeks, but get over it. And that's the chapter in which I'm like, I knew exactly what I was doing and I still do and I'm doing it because it's the only thing that's keeping me going. And that's what... It was working. It's serving. Exactly. And that's what humour is, you know. And if anyone dared turn to you and say, how dare you, Ali, laugh at this bogged ambulance, you know, that's the response that you have is, you know, no, this is my authentic experience and it's serving me because it's allowing me to get to the next hour. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the chapter I kind of was, I was highlighting was this chapter around explosions. And I think you started with, you know, sometimes life blows up. Uh, we don't want it to, you don't, you're not going to expect it, but it's going to come. And in a lot of ways, the last couple of years with the pandemic, there is, I, I fundamentally believe there is this kind of unprocessed trauma and a whole range of things. And sometimes the trauma is that nothing happened and yet I still feel beat up like uh, the trauma is that I sh- I I shouldn't feel like yeah. this or I shouldn't I have no and, scars and I why think, do I feel so wounded yeah. Mm. yeah I'm okay my family's okay and yet I'm on edge and I'm waiting for the next thing and it feels like and that's trauma um and there's I think there's going to be a couple of years of processing and talking about that and the more that we can find ways and ends and spaces and places and humour and connection and tears and all of that, the more that that's going to get moved through and understood. I think there's also... Um, through the lessons. So I think there's something really powerful. Yeah, you're spot on. I think there's validation in in allowing everyone to understand that there has been a collective trauma. Not everyone got anal cancer, you know, but it's, you're still allowed to say that it was a really shitty year. <laughs> you know, it's just... There's no, um, I think that what the past two years has, has, has delivered us is a change in what is, what is the, the valid scale of, of human misery. <laughs> and just because you have, you know, you don't have scars doesn't mean that you, you are not feeling traumatised. There's one um, piece of my great-grandfather's writing that, I mean, God, he was an amazing writer. Um, I'm just bloody lucky that I could 
ride on his coattails into the sunset. But there was a piece that he writes um, when he's in London and he's in a hospital in Regent's Park recovering from his uh, artillery, um, which is basically being blown up in Belgium. And the nurse takes him into uh, Regent's Park to see some fireworks and it's on Guy Fawkes. And the entire paragraph is just beautiful. He talks about the light um, hitting the tracery of the tree trunks. You know, he's a real poet. But he talks about standing in a group watching those fireworks light up the sky and looking around and seeing this empty stare and all of these wounded men who have just come from the front of World War One. you know. And, and he, his last line is, don't think I'll ever enjoy fireworks. And it's just like, oh, you know, the, back then it was 1919, you know, no one really was, they didn't know what trauma was and they certainly didn't know what PTSD was and they had all these other sort of Victorian phrases for it. But, you know, just that, that little passage where he, he talks about something as beautiful as a firework and how it's, it's never going to be a, something that he can ever enjoy. Different. You know, and I think that we're all coming out of the last two years and then in stepping into whatever this is at the moment and um, we've all got our own personal fireworks that we just feel like we can't really enjoy anymore. That it's changed. It's permanently yeah. changed and it's different and finding finding new things that connect. One of the things that is kind of shifting and um, I'd love to talk from your experience around just identity. So I think there is a bit of a collective with that what do I want to be doing? Where do I want to be spending my time? Who am I in amongst that? And um, for many people, you know, identity is connected to the job that we do when people here in Australia, when you go to barbecues or when you catch up or connect, it's like, um, who are you and what do you do? And it's it's so kind of connected to that part of your story. And you've mentioned the 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 healing or the important critical nature of that is being able to share things on Instagram. There's this kind of Instagram persona, which is kind of part of your identity, the advertising, which is part of your DNA, by the way, by the sounds, <laughs> by the sounds of it, uh, not just kind of identity. What do you think is next in terms of, um, aside from putting author mm-hmm. on your LinkedIn bio and, and embracing that identity, what's next for you around who you are and, and, um, what are the things oh, that are important? God, can you tell me that? I don't know the answer to that. I'm just like, oh. <laughs> um, I took a year off work <laughs> to finish the book because um, I thought, oh, actually, it was going to be six months, but then the world shut down and I realised that I had to homeschool and I had to write the book in between the hours of sort of 8 o'clock and midnight every night. But I very deliberately didn't resign. I took a sabbatical, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, I still have a working email address, but I'm very poor. <laughs> uh, and I think beyond anything, I I love the people that I work with, but I couldn't see myself resigning from an agency without having another advertising job lined up because I've never done that before. And I am the biggest ad geek than you have ever met and to the point where it's become incredibly, incredibly uncool in the past five or ten years to really love advertising it was really cool and now it's like oh you know I'm gonna go work for a tech startup because you know advertising is full of old wankers and dinosaurs um and I was sort of still the stalwart in the corner going but it's a magical industry and we work with we 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 weave gold from straw and all this sort of stuff you know that was my identity was I was the cheerleader for the entire fucking industry and now I feel like I've sort of shown myself behind the curtain everyone else knew that advertising was a sort of a fallible industry I was the only one who thought it was you know the 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 fields of gold and the emerald city at the end and look I'm exaggerating for effect but I think personally when you say you know what's next for my identity it's probably someone who still doesn't really want to leave advertising but is realizing that um I've sort of, I've opened up Pandora's box internally and I've, I've shown my own self that I can actually, I can actually go and do anything, something else. You know, I used to think that I, there was nothing else in the world that I could do except for be a really good suit. Uh, and now it seems that I can also potentially write books. So my identity is, is going to be straddling between those two and wondering 
what the hell is next and can those two things coexist? It's interesting as you're talking, I mean, one of the things that comes to mind for me is uh, well, even the word is expansion. So it's not either mm. or, it's actually just exactly. a, um, an expansion of, and I often think about that for the mums, new mums, you know, that, that will be one of the things that they kind of look at. Well, this is what I was pre, pre-child, you know, things that were important before, maybe less important things that weren't are now even more so. And it's not about changing who you've been. It's actually just an expansion. This is where you sound like my therapist. And grows. Because as my psychiatrist, he's like, <laughs> Ella, it's not black and white. There doesn't need to be an all or nothing. Why do they have to be two extremes? Why can't you just, as you say, expand your life and have the two things coexist? And I think that, you know, we were talking earlier, we talked about, you know, the great resignation and and then, uh, you know, this sense of the world is a complicated, messy, often horrible place at the moment. And clearly there must be a future, some form of future, in which we need to just smudge a whole bunch of different identities and lifestyles and futures into one weirdly shaped organic sort of blob and then keep going in, 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 that, in that way because the world of 20 years ago doesn't exist. And so we shouldn't really exist in that way either. And it is allowed to be messy and we're allowed to be expanded and try and fail and, you know, feel like we are going to all quit our jobs, whether we actually literally do or we just sort of quit our jobs mentally and then join again the next Monday morning. Rehire <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's totally okay too. Uh, this, this book is an invitation. The 27 letters are an exploration, an adventure kind of moving forward. And Ella, I've, I've just... Love this conversation. Um, I wish there was kind of part two, which maybe we'll do in, in when the next book comes out. Um, but I'd love to wrap up this conversation. The name of the podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? I think about how I would tell my daughter how to live a standout life. And I think it's about seeking out the places or the people that help you feel like you're standing out, you know, and it could be someone that makes you laugh, you know, a certain way, or it could be a job that makes you stand with your shoulders back up a little bit. And I think that's what a standout life is, is it's just whether it's the family that you come from or the family you've created it's, you know, creating an energy that allows you to sort of, yeah, stand up and stand out. Beautiful. All the best with putting the book out into Thank the world. You, All the best with um, the adventures that laid ahead. This is this is like the next phase of the book. The writing it, the ideas is one thing <laughs> and putting it out into the world is a whole other thing. So all the best with it. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life. <laughs>